Welcome back to EcoMotion Conversations. EcoMotion's mission is the cost-effective greening of cities, corporations, and campuses. This podcast series digs for key insights from leading green thinkers, their works, their passions, lessons learned, and turning to my guest, just what keeps your engines charged. I'm delighted to be here with Jigger Shaw. Uh, he is going to inspire us, to challenge us, to excite us, and we'll just jump right in. Good morning. How are you? Very well. Thanks for, for coming here. This is fantastic. Well, we're, very, we're very pleased to be here. Now, you are heralded as the, the founder or the godfather of the Power Purchase Agreement. That's a huge distinction. Congratulations to you, and uh, you've created um, a massive movement in our, in our industry. So how did you come up with a, the PPA model? Where, where did that inspire? When was the epiphany? What hit you? How did this well, come about? Well, I think the honest truth is that I didn't come up with anything as much as I repurposed something that was already being done. I think people had already looked at energy savings agreements in the energy efficiency space for years. And so it was really trying to redo the energy savings agreement for the solar industry. And uh, you know there were hundreds of people that worked on helping to make this thing happen, but uh, we finally got it there. But the, the, they were usually using a performance contracting model, right? They would take a, they would take a share of the savings. Yeah. And it seems like in sort of very simplistic terms that you left that shared savings arrangement and you went more to a solar as a service. I'm going to pay you for your solar kilowatt hours, right? Yeah, so, I think that's exactly right. And it was, um, it certainly greatly simplified baselining and all of the things that we find to be problematic with energy savings contracts. Right. Um, you know, just selling kilowatt hours is something that people are used to seeing from their electric utility company for years, right? And so it's, sure. uh, it was, it was fairly. It was a fairly simple concept. It certainly wasn't easy to implement, but it was a right. fairly simple and let's see, concept. Let me see if I get the chronology. Born in India, right? Yep. Aged four, five, moved to the States? Oh, well, I was here. one. Yeah. Oh, you're one. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Even earlier. Yeah. Even earlier. So, uh, and then college at University of Illinois? That's right. Now, is that when you started getting into this model, or is it more graduate program yeah. in Maryland? I, or? I really started getting into solar when I was 16, and then you know, really studied it a lot when I was in college. And then, um, yeah, the model, I think, came to me after, you know, years of talking to clients and customers and realizing that they just weren't prioritizing solar with their capital, right? Like, I mean, everything was more important than solar, whether it was their kid's summer camp or, you know, a new car they had to buy or a remodeled kitchen. There was always something they wanted to do that was more important. Than so make it solar. as simple as them paying their utility bill. That's right. Instead of paying the, the utility, they're paying their solar provider. And That's right. As long as it's about the same, or if it's less, even better. That's right. So the insight was if we brought the capital, you know, would they, would they also, you know, like take so long to make a decision? The answer was no. Right. And then, you know, well, if we brought the capital, how could we ensure that the providers of the capital are going to get paid back? And that was you know, sort of the secret sauce. Right, right. Well, and it's just been, I, I, I thank you because we work with all these school districts. They don't have the cash. We work with cities. They, they don't want to, they prioritize other things. And so this has been a tr terrific uh, mechanism. Has the PPA mechanism lived up to your expectations? Yeah, I, look, I think that any financial instrument is sort of just that, a financial instrument, right? So the question then becomes, is it capable of really, you know, surviving the test of scale? And I think the PPA has survived the test of scale, and today it's being used, um, you know, at a multi-billion-dollar level in the United States, and and has attracted almost a trillion dollars globally. Yeah, that's right. So, what do you think? The, the what is the volume now in the United States annual volume of 
PPA It's about twenty deals. billion or so of PPAs, yeah. power and, purchase agreements. And you get a year. share of every one of those. Yeah, dollars. exactly. <laughs> exactly. Do you hear all the coins like you know? <laughs> falling out of your pocket? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fantastic. I, I, you must be very proud, or at least your wife must be very proud of you. No, well, I'm very <clears> proud, <throat> and frankly, I think all the hundreds of people that you know helped me to put it together, I think, are very proud, and they're all sprinkled across. The solar industry today, I mean, the Sun Edison alumni are, I mean, all over the place, uh, yeah. around the world, and, and they're doing great things, and so it brings me great joy. Yeah, and we're seeing in our, you know, in these past few decades, we're seeing this transformation. From Mike Peavy, who is the president of the PUC, Ted, just be patient. Just be patient. I'm, I'm not a patient person. He said, be patient. And now, you know, we can look after 10 or 20 years and just see you know, dramatic, dramatic re results. Now, you founded and headed up Sun Edison, which I think became the biggest solar company in the United States. Is that? At one point, it was the right? largest solar company in the world, yeah. Now, um, what? And then you went to the Carbon War Room, which I just met you this morning, but I'm imagining you went from being deep in the solar business to wanting to get more into a policy framework. Is that? Is that? Was that the transition? Was that the allure of going to the Carbon well, War Room? Or? The Carbon War Room was founded by Sir Richard Branson. Yeah. Which you can imagine, I mean, if he's anything, he's sort of the patron saint of entrepreneurship. Yeah. And so, you know, to me, it was less policy and more entrepreneurship, right? I mean, I think mm. what I had recognized was that there were tens of thousands of entrepreneurs around the world who all had the same, you know, desire, which was to take their climate solution and scale it to relevance. Yeah. And there were a lot of things that were holding them back, right? Policy could be one of them, mm -hmm. but it could also be industry standards. It could also be availability of finance. It could be lots of things. And what we found was that Richard Branson and his friends mm -hmm. could play a huge role in unlocking those um, those uh, barriers that were standing in the way of those entrepreneurs. And so you and you you and he, I guess, and others came up with this whole notion of creating carbon wealth. Yeah, kind of flipping a problem, right? Taking a problem, a big threat to our society, and turning it into a profit centers, really. Well, I mean, you know, I think that before we started the Carbon War Room, the the common frame was shared sacrifice, right? Everyone needed yeah. to spend an extra cup of coffee right. a month to be able to solve. The Jimmy Carter problem. put on the sweater, right? right. And, you and you know, you can imagine that that's not really an inspirational message, yeah. and so. What we realized was well, this was really the largest wealth creation opportunity um, in our lifetimes. When you think about you know taking all of the embedded infrastructure that had been built since the 40s, you know post World War II, yeah. and converting it all into a climate friendly infrastructure package, um, using technologies that had largely been around since the 70s, um, that's a huge amount of money, right? I mean, it's something about five trillion dollars a year that gets diverted from bad stuff to good stuff, right? Right, and. You know, folks who are working on making that conversion are going to get fabulously wealthy. Right. And so then the question becomes, you know, how do we inspire the best and the brightest to choose this as their, you know, pursuit, vocational pursuit, as opposed to, you know, create an app for their phone? Right, right. It's just at a conference at the Getty Center on Friday, and we had the governors of Washington and Oregon, mayor of Los Angeles, but talking about that whole Pacific region, including British Columbia, has become really a leader in um, creating carbon wealth, I guess, and, and jobs have been fantastic in the clean tech space, and the, the GDPs are up and, you know, outstripping the rest of the nation dramatically. Right. You know, so we really, we've really gone from that sense of sacrifice to uh, this is a... Opportunity. A new Absolutely. and a terrific opportunity. For, and for policy so plays a critical role there. 
right? Yeah. I mean, the renewable portfolio standards have forced the utility companies to sign contracts that they may not have otherwise signed. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the next phase, which the Pacific Coast is trying to do, is this extended producer responsibility and getting manufacturers to be responsible for making sure that full recycling occurs. Um, you know, so, so policy matters. And then once the policy gets passed, then entrepreneurs can come in and sell their solutions. Yeah. Just a, just a really an aside, but what was it like to work with Richard Branson? He's, uh... You know, the guy is really, really smart. And, you know, yeah. he comes off as aloof and, you know, not, not uh, quite serious. A balloonist. Uh, a balloonist, uh, record, all those things, Recording right? artist, I mean, signing up people. But that really is his external persona. I mean, you know, yeah. internally the guy is a shark. And what he really is looking for is figuring out how to actually take, you know, basically the brand and the sort of free publicity that he gets to dramatically reduce the cost of marketing for his companies, yeah. right? And he provides people a better experience. And in exchange, you know, they, they uh, keep up his antics and whatnot. And he's able to get, you know, for a lot of these businesses, you're spending 10% of revenue on marketing. Yeah. Right. If he can reduce that to five percent of revenue, that's a lot of additional profit. Right. Um, now, and where, that, did, where did he see this? Com what, where did he see that combination of with Rocky Mountain Institute being so valuable? Or did you introduce that idea? Or? Well, I think that the the big challenge with energy efficiency and all these other sort of areas is that there's a consumer element to this, right? Which is where Richard is, you know, king, right? And and we've never really solved that knot, right? I mean, like we've never, even since the '70s, been able to say that this conversion is actually sexy and something that should be prioritized, right? For a long time, it was sort of Jimmy Carter wearing a sweater. It was a fringe, right? fringe activity, and right? And it still is sort of, yeah. you know, like sort of billed as doing more with less, yeah. which is not the most inspirational story, right? Yeah. And so the tech story of saying, actually, the fact that I can control my thermostat from my phone is pretty damn cool. Yeah. Right, the fact that I can actually see whether my doors are locked and my windows are shut from my phone is really cool. Right, and that tech is now providing the level of energy efficiency um, that folks heretofore weren't really inspired to do. Right, and I think Richard has seen that that is the next generation of Rocky Mountain Institute. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. So then, what led to your? Um, is it a pivot to generate capital, or is it, I mean? You are you're still on the board of Rocky Mountain Institute. Well, I just I just dropped off the board after being term limited. But, oh, okay. but basically, I think that yeah, I mean, generate capital is a natural evolution of my beginning, yeah. right? I mean, my beginning was really around figuring out solar as a service, and now generate capital is actually inspiring infrastructure as a service. So what we're doing is finding the entrepreneurs who are starting the Sun Edisons in their field and providing them the necessary capital yeah. to do the first institutional investments, right? Because what we're finding is, whether it's anaerobic digesters or compost facilities or recycling or, you know, I mean, electric vehicles, every one of them is misunderstood. They go to their local bank, they go to their local solar or wind investor, and they're saying, we don't understand you. We understand solar and wind, yeah. but we don't understand anaerobic digesters. We certainly don't understand carbon black, uh, you know, using biomass as a service, right? That all of these newfangled technologies, which have been around since the 70s, right, yeah. are something that they're misunderstanding. And so Generate steps in and says, we understand project finance. And, and it doesn't really matter what you're doing as long as it fits this formula. Yeah. If it fits this formula, we feel like we have a realistic you know, vision of getting paid back. Right. And, and what percentage of your deals now are solar? 
Very few. I mean, I would say that we're less than 25% oh, really? Okay. Yeah, we do a lot of battery storage. Yeah, that was my next question. How is storage affecting your business uh, and our country, I suppose? But, but let's focus on your business. I mean, it's that... Uh, yeah. You're financing a lot of batteries in combination with other technologies or sometimes independent? Of other For a long time, the batteries that we funded were really independent. Yeah. I think the solar plus storage thing um, has, has started to take off, yeah. but it's still quite confusing to people. Yeah. And I think that you know, the, the projects that we've been doing have been you know, sort of you know, examples of what others can copy. And so I think that is you know, going a long way to, to getting people to, to confidently you know, provide that service. But, mm-hmm. but storage fundamentally, I think, is actually valuable to the grid not really, or to the customer, not really to the solar. Right. It just happens that they can be sold together. And in some cases, they, they're conflicting with each other because of the yeah. rate, rate changes and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But um, yeah, it seems like most battery systems in California, I'm guessing, over 90% on the, behind the meter, uh, our two-hour discharge batteries, right? Yep. So, so now we're going into this. Uh, you were, you financed the Santa Rita Union School District project where we have energy resilience, and we're really looking at not not two-hour batteries, but we're looking at batteries to power a school for the whole day, and then indefinitely if the grid goes down. Yeah. Um, so, have you finance? Is this your first resilience project that you financed? Well, you know, I, you know, the resilience is in the eye of the customer. So okay. may, there may have been other deals that we've done that they, they view as resilience. But this is certainly one of the ones that we're most proud of. And, you know, thank you very much for your role in yeah. making this happen. Um, I, you know, I, I think that schools in particular are, you know, looked to by the community as places to go to in an emergency, right? It's a place that needs to be safe enough for children. Yeah. And uh, you know, certainly can be safe enough to provide services for the whole community. And so the, 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 set, the sense that I get is, is that this project is, has brought pride not only to the school district and you know, the decision makers there, but also to the community at large, which I think is critical. Yeah. Well, one of, the, one of the things that occurred to me as we got deeper into the project, I was originally just asked to come up and provide batteries for the, for the school district. And then we realized the solar and storage play. And then we realized that we were really creating microgrids, carbon-free microgrids, financed thanks to you. Um, and then we realized, and this played very well with the school board, that if we had these capabilities that these, in, an, in a prolonged outage, heaven forbid, but in a prolonged outage, these can become terrific community assets, and the, and the board went crazy over this idea. So we've been, um, we've been in discussions with the Red Cross. I was, I've been with Cal OES, Office of Emergency Services. I was at a FEMA training the other day. We're figuring out the protocols for these campuses to become what I'm called powered emergency response centers that can be these tremendous community benefits. So it's, um, it's terrific. I'm, I'm a little concerned going forward. Uh, I'm trying to figure out how we finance what I'll call resiliency or seven or eight hour battery storage on campuses going forward. In, our, in this Santa Rita case, we had a combination of solar storage, microgrid controls, energy management systems, electric buses. We had a whole package going on. But it's going to be interesting to see how we finance that sort of level of resiliency. Well, look, I, I think that you know, the solar industry has gotten itself into a frame of mind which is probably unhealthy. Right. The bottom line is the solar industry can get a lot of money to school districts that don't have a lot of cash in their bu- in their budget. Right. Right. And the frame that we've given people is that well, you need to save twenty percent of your electricity bill to make this pencil or worth doing. Right. And the bottom line is is that 
for a school district, um, you know, twenty percent savings on electricity is real money. Yeah. But it's not. It's it's not a big deal, right? Ultimately, you know, for these schools, they may have a one point eight billion dollar budget, right? And we're t- we're saving them twenty five thousand dollars a year. Right, that's not a big number. Now, if they pledge that $25,000 towards resiliency every year, we can actually fully compensate for the batteries and the extra cost of putting those batteries in, which is what we did at Santa Rita. Right. So then you're at a place where you can create a resiliency package that doesn't cost the school any more than they would have paid otherwise to the utility, right. but they get all these other features and benefits. And, that's- right? and that transition of a conversation is very hard for the solar industry. They're so used to saying we're saving you 20%. Right. But in fact, the 20% is meaningless to the school. Yes, maybe it pays for a few more books here or a few more chalkboards or whatever it is. But in the end, right, what matters more to the school district is that the kids are safe and that this becomes a community asset. Right. And I think that you know, the solar industry basically has to go away from selling a commodity to selling something more value-added. Right, right. And I know in Santa Rita, they're happy to pay the exact same annual power bill that's right. That they were paying to PG&E, and now they've got 100% solar in their campuses, and there's tremendous resiliency, and it's a, it's a happy story. So I guess, Jigger, you would say then for the hundreds of campuses that already have solar, um, that we, if we wanted to finance resiliency, we'd have to set up some sort of a green revolving fund, or we'd have to set up a, a way that they would take their savings from the existing solar and dedicate that revenue, that saving stream, that revenue stream to paying for resilience going forward. Well, I mean, you could simply just amend the document, right? The document that they already have that says that they're paying 14 cents a kilowatt hour, you now charge them 18 cents a kilowatt hour, which is their full savings, right? Right. And you say, well, we're adding a battery now, right? So, I mean, and the battery then would be eligible for the tax credits and all that stuff. And so so I think there's actually a relatively simple way to do this. I think that the problem is really around changing the mindset of the decision maker and saying, yes, you're paying an extra four cents a kilowatt hour. Those are four cents that you would have saved. But in fact, you're investing that four cents now into this resiliency infrastructure, which you know, keeps the children far more safe right. and you know, provides this community asset. Now, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and you've, you've greatly educated me already this morning. Thank you very much for that. Um, David Coonhart, our friend David Coonhart, yep. head of Solad, who's going to be inter- we're interviewing next for our video, um, went out to something like 15 different financiers. Yeah. And all of them turned this down because there was no revenue stream or, you know, from the batteries. Um, what's the matter with them? Why didn't they, why didn't they jump on this? Uh, just too, are, are the yeah. investors just too cautious to take well, on Well, you know, look, I mean, Generate Capital was set up to be able to say yes to these kinds of deals. Yeah. Right? The vast majority of folks are set up to say no to anything that's not in their box. Yeah. Right, so when they went out and raised money from their investors, they said they were going to do plain vanilla solar deals. Yeah. This was not a plain vanilla solar deal, and so therefore, they were obligated to say no. I don't fault them for that, yeah. but I do think that that's why we were set up differently. Right. Because whether it's batteries plus solar or whether it's anaerobic digesters, there's a lot of technologies out there that are worth funding, and situations that are worth funding yeah. that others are just not allowed to fund. Right. So you've got a group of investors that trust you to make, you know, you're, you're going out on, not on a limb, you're, you're going out on a progressive edge. It's not the bleeding edge of innovation, but you're going out taking more chance than 
most investors would. But so you must have a group of investors that just say, "We get it. We understand that Jigger Show is yeah, going to bring well, us." Yeah, well, myself and my partners, right, and then the thirty employees that work here. I think we're definitely trusted to to verify that these projects fit into a box. Yeah. which is more diverse than other people's boxes, right? Yeah. Our box is still the same as everybody else's box around getting paid back, right? We're not a venture capital firm, right. so we're not intended to take the kind of risks that venture capitalists take where the technology yeah. could just fail, yeah. right? So in this particular project, we, we're using standard off-the-shelf solar panels, and then we're working with you know, a billion-dollar company in Sharp you know, to actually put in quality batteries right. with quality control systems, with a quality warranty to actually ensure that it's going to work as designed for the remaining life of the contract. That's right. That's, that's a good reality check for me. I, I remember we were pushing the Avalon battery, the flow batteries, yeah. vanadium flow batteries that are probably a terrific technology going forward, uh, but not proven yet. Um, and that company not particularly bankable. I, I imagine they have a short track record. And well, I, yeah, and so for a lot of those companies, I do think there's a pathway for them. They yeah. just have to find a bigger entity to, to, to wrap their, their technology. So for instance, EOS, which is another battery technology out there, mm -hmm. has been wrapped by Siemens. So Siemens has said, in exchange for being able to provide the inverters and the control systems and all the other hardware which we're selling and making money yeah. on, we will wrap this technology because we've done full due diligence and we believe in this company. Okay. Now, yeah. you know, they could do the same for Avalon and yeah. you know, and there are others like ABB or yeah. Snyder Electric or GE or others that can do that for Avalon, right? And yeah. and ultimately the reason why this matters so much is that our investors are infrastructure investors, right? They want to put money to work and get money back over twenty years. Yeah. Right? They don't want to be in the business of speculating on whether this company is going to take off and this technology is going to become the new hot thing. So as long as somebody, like is it wraps it, like a Siemens or somebody like that, embraces it, that right. gives the confidence. Because you, were, you had that insight to bring um, Black & Veatch in to do the engineering of the microgrids in, in Santa Rita. Yeah. And then to bring in Sharp, and we've, we've really enjoyed working with Kirk Stokes, a great guy. Oh my God, that guy and I have known each other since he worked at Alpha Technologies yeah. back in like 99. Yeah. And uh, so he's been a very good friend for a very long time. And, and it's, it's one of those things where I, I think that there is a desire to paint people like me as, you know, sort of Elon Musk innovators who are basically pushing the envelope doing weird things. And, you know, I'm certainly viewed that way by the very conservative investor class that backs us. Yeah. But it's still a very conservative investor class. I mean, to really solve climate change, we need to divert and shift $5 trillion of capital a year, right? Five trillion dollars of capital doesn't want to take venture capital style risks, right? right? Maybe a hundred billion does, or ten billion, <laughs> but the rest of it really wants tried and true, yeah. well wrapped solutions, right? And that is what I traffic in, and it's it's the funniest thing because people say, "Well, Jigger, like you know, you you guys are the most innovative. You should do want to do this." And I said, "Well, we are innovative compared to our peers, uh, you know, yeah. compared to the other fifteen folks that Dave went right. to." Right, right, Let's let's wrap with a couple of questions about how you maintain balance in your life, or if you do. You seem very balanced to me. <laughs> I, think, I think we're Facebook friends. I think you have a child, and it seems like life is really good. But yeah. what are you doing to stay healthy and uh, vigorous in life? Well, look, I think that I learned a long time ago that you always should be surrounding yourself with people who are smarter than you and that challenge you. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of people who say that. There are very few people who do that. 
right? So my two partners are equals in every way to me and in fact are better than me in many ways. Mm -hmm. and, and that's important, right? This is not all on my shoulders. It's on all three of our shoulders together, which, which makes it easier. Yeah. We have a board who constantly challenges us. They are not yes men or yes women board. I mean, these folks actually challenge us and that means that we don't make as many mistakes, right? Yeah. I also, I think, you know, I'm very careful to only commit to things that I can commit to. I do have a two and a half year old and I want to spend as much time as I can with my, yeah. my you know, young son. And I think it means that, you know, all of those incremental conferences that you think you're gonna get something out of, you say no to, right? All those incremental meetings that are sort of in far flung places, you say no to. And, yeah. you know, and with technology, I'm able to talk to all those people by, by Skype or by, you know, Zoom or by, you know, phone yeah. and, um, and still like stay in touch with everybody, right? And I just think that there's certain sacrifices that I'm making today that I didn't have to make when I was in my 20s. That's, that's very interesting that you say that because, um uh, I completely agree that uh, most of us uh, are just in enticed by so many things in life. I know I am. I like this really healthy diversity of projects. And um, I usually say yes to every speaking engagement and every time to go into schools and talk to kids and all that kind of stuff. But you've got to figure out where those bounds are and what you can do realistically. But it's interesting that you're saying that because you have this reputation of being the guy that talks to everybody. Well, I so. do talk to everybody and I still talk to everybody. We evaluate 600 companies a year and I have talked to every one of them yeah. myself. And I believe that yeah. everyone should be given the respect um, necessary by talking to people directly. Yeah. I've never understood the allure of middlemen and you know, like, you know, folks who screen people out and all that stuff. I think that you know, every person who's working in the climate change movement you yeah. know, deserves a fair hearing, right? Yeah. And I'm not above anybody else and I'm happy yeah. to spend the time talking to them. I just don't think that I can fly on an airplane and meet with them in person every time. Right. You know, it may be a phone call or a you know, video chat instead. Right. Um, but look, I think, I think that one of the things that we have lost touch with in this day and age is treating people with respect and kindness by giving them our time. And I, I think yeah. that that is something that I, that I will continue to do. Yeah, and I really appreciated that. When you and I started talking about maybe eight months ago or so, you had your secretary call me up and say, Jigger, we'd like to schedule a, a phone conversation. And I don't get that very often. Uh, for you know, Just somebody wanting to understand where I'm coming from and swap notes. We spent almost an hour on the phone, and I told you my life story, and you listened and were interested, and you told me yours, and I was definitely interested. But that... Um, I thank you for that because uh, I think we all can learn from that. Um, it's too easy to jot a text message or to send an email, um, but not to really make the connection with somebody that makes you really want to work with that person going forward. So, Yeah, you know, I turned off notifications for texts on my phone, so it is literally the worst way to reach me. Yeah. I have like a three-day response time to text. And, yeah. uh, and it's, it's largely because of that. I, I, I just yeah. never understood the, the notion of how like that is a respectful way to talk with people. I just don't, you know, maybe I'm just old school at this point. But Well, I remember when the fax machine, I was at RMI actually when the first, we got our first fax machine. Oh, right. it was a big deal. Right. And remember they had the, roll, the, the paper that yeah. rolled up and everything. It was just an awful, an awful thing. But... Um, when those first faxes came in, everybody dropped everything. Reading over to the fax machines. Even the fax machines. I remember working for Public Citizen, where we used to send out, you know, over ten thousand faxes 
overnight from like midnight to two in the morning because yeah. rates were cheaper then. Sure, sure. <laughs> you had to pay for a call back then. And it was so impersonal. I mean, had, had we gone back to the old church approach of a phone tree yeah. and actually called all 10,000 of those people using a phone tree, I think that we would have been more effective, yeah. right? And people said, well, but it costs more and da da da, whatever else. But if what you're trying to do is to create real human connections yeah. by which you can actually organize these very difficult to organize projects. The Santa Rita Schools project was not easy, yeah. right? It required a tremendous amount of coordination by yourself, mm -hmm. by David and Soled, by the EPC contractor that we ended up hiring, MBL, yeah. and all of the complexities of working with the state of California regulations on schools. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was so complicated and it worked because people actually genuinely jumped on the phone and talked to each other and coordinated and project managed and, and genuinely tried to understand people's point of view so that we could craft this financeable deal together. And I don't think that's easy to do by text or by email. Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, thank you so much for your time this morning. It's a pleasure to meet you and to hear, to learn from you and to share uh, your lessons learned with others. So I appreciate it Well, the pleasure much. is all mine. The only reason why I'm here is because people like yourself are taking on weird and interesting projects and you know then need weird and interesting financing partners. And so <laughs> I appreciate all of the endeavors that you continue to pursue. Good. Well, thank you so much, Jigger. Thanks.